Here we go. This is season three of Sports Life Balance. There was one day that I had come home from school. I went through my normal routine. That evening as I was in the bathroom, that is when I started noticing that my sight was blurred. So I was sitting inside of the bathtub getting cleaned up for bed. I remember looking at my hands and looking at the lights in the ceiling, looking at all of the, the scenes and images within the bathroom, and they were looking murky, blurred, faint. So I get out of the bathtub, hop onto the bathroom counter, look in the mirror. That is when I, I felt that fear within because it was, it was hard for me to see my reflection in the mirror. So it was literally like looking at a, a disfigured image of myself. Introducing blind Paralympic long jumper, Lex Gillette, talking about the terrifying first moments of losing his sight as an eight-year-old boy. I'm John Moffat, and I'm glad you're here for another informative and also inspiring episode of Sports Life Balance. At first, when Lex lost his sight, he felt overcome by the darkness. But with the patient guidance from his mother and the loving imagination of his grandmother, the world around him opened up in his mind. His talent for jumping was discovered in grade school, and with the early support from teachers and coaches, Lex learned to long jump. By 19 years old, he had made his first Paralympic team, and to date, Lex has earned five silver medals in five Paralympic Games. So now it's time for Lex to tell his story of how he sees with his mind by embracing his lifelong ethos, that there's no need for sight when you have a vision. We're here at the Chula Vista Elite Training Center. Yes. In beautiful Chula Vista. This is formerly the Olympic Training Center. And this is Lex's house, Lex's house too, right? I mean, you've lived here for a long time. How long have you lived here? Since 2008. Wow. So you have lived here for 14 years. Yeah. I'm guessing that one of the reasons that you keep coming back and staying here is because it's a familiar environment and it's someplace that you as a blind person feel comfortable training and living and 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 recreating and everything else. Absolutely. It makes life really easy because you have everything in close proximity and you don't have to worry about hopping in a car to go to this training facility or going to get your acupuncture done or get an adjustment here or going to get a massage there. Literally everything is here from training venues to the dining hall, sports medicine, strength and conditioning, gym, sports performance, everything. And, and so that's super vital to you because you don't always want to be relying on somebody else to drive you places and stuff like that, right? You're able to get around with, excuse me, with your cane and, and, and you're very familiar with it. I'm Bingo. Assuming. Yeah. It totally aligns with how I was raised, which is really tapping into that independent, independent achievement and doing everything that quite frankly, that you, you know, should be doing given the resources right. that you have. As an elite athlete, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure it's a really busy life, too. I mean, obviously, we talked about training. There's uh, traveling and then competing. But some, somewhere in there, in that busy schedule, you found a time to write your memoir, Fly. Uh, why did you decide to go with that title? It is, I think it's just the epitome of everything that I do. Literally, as, as a long jumper running down the runway, leaping, soaring through the air and landing in the sand. But also, when I think about flying, I think about the trajectory of my life, how 
gravity plays a part in that. And in my mind, gravity is in the form of, it comes in the form of people who try and hold you down and oh. naysayers and people who try and lock you to the earth. But every time that I'm on the runway, that is my opportunity to defy gravity. Defy the gravity of physics and also defy the gravity of what people expect of you and the limitations they place upon you? Absolutely. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, you you have, um, as I said earlier, you, you're, you're blind, but you haven't always been blind. Tell me um, a bit about your childhood and and growing up. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. As a as a kid in Raleigh, I was doing everything that you can imagine a seven year old, eight year old boy doing. Right. I was outside playing the video games and riding my bicycle, playing hide and seek. We had a treehouse in the backyard. There was one day that I had come home from school. I went through my normal routine. That evening as I was in the bathroom, that is when I started noticing that my sight was blurred. So I was sitting inside of the bathtub getting cleaned up for bed. I remember looking at my hands and looking at the lights in the ceiling, looking at all of the, the scenes and images within the bathroom, and they were looking murky, blurred, faint. So I get out of the bathtub, hop onto the bathroom counter, look in the mirror, that is when you know, I, I felt that fear within because it was it was hard for me to see my reflection in the mirror. So it was literally like looking at a, a disfigured image of myself. I told my mom, she had thought maybe I had gotten something in my eyes from mm-hmm. playing outside early right. in the day. You know, I was rolling around in the grass and yeah. in the dirt and things like that. So we took some water, cleaned my eyes out, which made it feel better, but it didn't clear my sight any. Yeah. We then went to the doctor. That is when they discovered that I was suffering from retina detachments. Oh, my heavens. So so th- then it was, I'm assuming, trips to the hospital, various forms of surgery, trying to reverse this process of you losing your sight? Yeah, literally inside of going to doctor's offices, doctor's visits, going to the hospital for the entire year that I was eight years old. 10 operations, going through that process of you go, you get the examination, you discover that your retinas have detached again, you have another procedure to fix that, you go through three or four weeks of bandages over your eye and eye drops and all types of visits to to see what the progress is in terms of, of the healing, eventually figuring out that oh, it didn't work, then you go back to the doctor, another examination, retina detachments again, another procedure, another surgery. You just, like, (laughs) repeat, repeat, repeat. And after the 10th operation, that is when doctors, they basically, you know, put up the white flag and say, you know, there's nothing else that we can do. I mean, I can't even begin to, it must have been so incredibly overwhelming. I mean, and alone, right? How do you... How did you cope as an eighteen year as an eight year old? It was a lot of it was my mom. I oh. remember all of those doctors' visits. I remember going through the process. I still was able to see to some degree. So mm. I'm following behind her, and she's looking blurred. She's looking faint. The the chairs that are inside of the 
doctors' offices and walking out of the, the front doors, all of those things are looking very disfigured and very faint. But I I had to leverage the strength that my mom displayed. She actually has glaucoma, so she understands what it what it's like to wow. have a visual impairment. However, she has she has usable sight. And and uh yeah, I mean I literally just had to to learn from her. Yeah. Everything. And and so this forced you then to take this world that you knew through sight um, and you had to kind of completely relearn the environment of yeah. how just to get to the school bus and things like that. Tell me what yeah. that process was. A lot of it was just being encouraged to, to explore, to discover, to, to get out there and to not be ashamed, number one, of mm. not being able to to see and at an early age my mom let me know that yeah this is the reality and these beginning stages are going to be challenging and we're going to have to transition from once being able to see the world and now not being able to see the world but there are accommodations there are different resources and things out there that we can tap into so that you can still be successful in life so in my neighborhood yes I was able to see it at one point but now I had to learn how to navigate using the the change in textures under my feet as I walk. So I knew that, you know, like imagining the neighborhood in my mind right now, if we were to go there today, I would be able to to escort you, John, around every single corner and crevice of that neighborhood because it's seared inside of my mind. Mm. And uh, so I literally had to learn every single aspect of of that neighborhood because mind you in the beginning it was just me learning a neighborhood once I got a little older it was it was my mom teaching me how to all right we got to learn how to take out the trash and we got to learn how to Hmm. to wash dishes and clean your room and all of those types of things and you got to know where you got to know where to navigate to do all of those things so it was me creating this image in my mind this map in my mind that was based on feeling based on sounds and understanding how to use those sounds in a way that would help guide my decisions as to how to proceed forward you know um well as you were describing your your uh neighborhood as your childhood neighborhood you your your face kind of transformed you 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 completely zoned in and you got this relaxed smile on your face. It was, it's like you almost sent yourself into another place. Yeah. I, I love, like, I literally love that neighborhood. Just as I was explaining it a few moments ago, it was like I was reliving that whole era again. Just being able to run around and, and run up those three stairs that led to, you know, the landing that would eventually get me to my front door or jumping off of that three-foot-high ledge that was in front of our apartment, landing in the grass below. Like, I, I love those things. I, I remember thinking to myself and, and just all of the emotions and it just flooded my entire being. I could have just, you know, yeah. I could have just cried. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm telling you, I could, I could tell you were just sent to another, another place. So once you were then um, inside your apartment, you had your mom teaching you the practical things, like you said. But also there is, a, I guess there's a, there's a safety there and a familiarity that is, I would think, also very important to you. Yeah. Because all of us, when we grow up, our first support network, our first community are our family and usually our parents. Yep. Explain what that was like. That was huge, yes. That home was that safe haven. Home was a space where I knew that I was good. I knew that I had the freedom to to be myself. I also knew that there were certain expectations mm. of me in the sense of, yeah, you are a child who's blind, a child who has a disability, but I still expect you to do chores. I still expect you to get your homework done, to have good grades. Mm. And in order for you to to participate in extracurricular activities, you got to get good grades. Yeah. You have to you have to have manners and use your manners and say thank you and Yeah. And yes ma'am, no ma'am, all of those mm-hmm. types of things. I <laughs> literally <laughs> if I didn't if I didn't follow the 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 plan, you know, there there was punishment. Right. You know, I couldn't you know, I couldn't play outside with friends. I couldn't play you know games or I couldn't go to this community event or or this camp or whatever it was. So I knew that I had I had responsibilities and I had priorities. Yeah. And and how did your mother um ultimately influence who you've become today? I think that daily display of perseverance of not allowing the world to dictate to you who you are. Mm. Again, my mom, she she doesn't drive, but she always got to work on time. Right. She always made it home, had food on the table. I can't even I can't remember a Christmas where I woke up unhappy. I had everything that I could possibly imagine. I had clothes, shoes, money to go on field trips, money to go to different camps. Right. And, and once I got into athletics, she found the resources and found, found the things that I would need to excel in sports as well. So yeah. definitely a very diverse offering of so many different things. And, of course, I'm living, I'm living life right now through – the athletic lens and you know so many other things as well but at that time it was having different internships and being exposed to computers mm-hmm. and accessible technology being a mentor for other kids who were learning about technology or learning about different subjects in school I'm, I'm a I'm a numbers person I'm really good at math mm-hmm. so I've tutored people in math before and, and yeah it was just her really providing so many different things for me so that I could truly spread my wings and fly and discover what it is that discover that path that I would want to want to travel down another person in your life that was um, a big part of your support network um, you have a really interesting passage in your book describing how 
your grandmother's house is where you would have all kinds yeah. of imaginary adventures. <laughs> um, yes. And you write that, quote, she gave you freedom of the mind. Yeah. How, how did all that happen with your grandma? My grandma lives in this small town where the average person might go there and say, oh, there's not much here. Mm. A couple thousand people. My grandma has this you know, small house where it's a really, if you're looking at the house from the front, there is a, a large tree to the left-hand side, and there was this chain that hung from one of the branches. And this is like an old, I would have to imagine this, it's an oak tree. Big old tree. You spread your arms, and you can't even wrap your arms around the tree. Mm-hmm. She has a, a very large backyard, and that served as my trampoline into imagination and fun. And, and, and long before I traveled to you know, Athens or Beijing or Brazil or all of these different places, you know, my grandma and I, we were going to those places in our minds. She bought me this this really... It was this black 18-wheeler toy truck, put batteries in the bottom of it, had a horn on the top of it, you know, womp, womp, uh-huh. you know, it's making the sounds, and it, you could crank it up on the side. It had the trailer on the back, and I'm, I'm driving this truck on the living room floor, and she's engaging in, in, my, in my travels and imagination. Okay, where, where are you, Lexus? Nobody at home. Nobody calls me. Lex is uh, Alexis. Like right. I'm, Your full name is Alexis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm at I'm at home and and I'm just you know in the the comfort of of my my family. So my grandmother is she's right along with me enjoying these trips from mm. <laughs> you know, Raleigh, North Carolina to Dallas, Texas, or driving that truck to Sacramento, California. We would even. You know, she she watches Jeopardy every day at 7 p.m. And we would compete against each other, answering different questions. By this point, you know, I was I was a little older. Right. But again, it was just her really tapping into that that mental side of things, the imagination. And and mm-hmm. again, going back to when I was very, very young, when it would rain torrential downpours, she has these, there are holes in her backyard and when it would rain those holes would fill up with water and we would pretend to be fishing or mm. she would give me these rain boots that she had and I'm, I'm short at this time so they're probably coming up to my waist <laughs> and, and I'm splashing around in the water and we're pretending that we're fishing and we're swimming and we're catching these exotic animals in the water wow. and yeah like that was that was everything. And I think that also, too, in the world that we live in right now, a lot of conversations have been amplified around, say, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility. And so long before those terms were, those terms were put on the loudspeaker, I think that my, my grandmother, she was tapping into that. You think about accessibility, she has a – there's a – a faucet on the side of the house, on the outside of the house. Connected to it is one of those green water hoses. 
And what she would do is she would take that water hose and stretch it into the the backyard, straight into the backyard from the side of the house. So what that did for me was those times when I would want to go outside and maybe she would, you know, she didn't want to go outside or maybe it was a little too hot or whatever. I could go out there by myself and where she stretched that water hose, it was in direct line of sight to the back door, the the windows that lined the back of the house as well as the the windows that were in front of the the kitchen sink. So the entire back of the house is basically made up of windows. So she could sit inside in the dining room reading her paper and and glance up from time to time and see what I'm doing in the backyard. Whenever I wanted to make my way back home, I knew to navigate to that that garden hose and I could follow that garden hose, feeling it under my feet as I walked. And as I got close to the house, then I knew that and I could take one step, two steps to the right-hand side, and that would lead me to the, the stairs that led up to the back door, and I could wow. come back inside. So, so that garden hose would literally leave you, lead you into the safety of Grandma's house. Yeah. Wow. What a story. Yeah. You also tell a story in your book about how you always loved basketball and that at some point in your childhood, you set up well, one of those little mini Nerf basketball hoops yep. um, in your bedroom. Yep. Um, and you were quite literally taking shots in the dark, but yeah. how, how was it that you were able to learn how to ultimately sink baskets without being able to see it? It was all based on where things were positioned in my room. Had my bed, had my wardrobe, had a desk, had the window that was in the corner of the room. So based on where those things were positioned, I had an idea of where that basketball hoop was. And the course in the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm shooting the ball and it's, it's bouncing all over the place. Right. <laughs> bouncing off of the wall, backboard, rim, all of those types of things. But eventually with the power that lies within mentally as well as muscle memory, it became something that I knew, okay, well, if I stand here and my back is to the wardrobe, when I shoot, okay, it's going to go in. Mm. All right, if I'm standing at the, the, the window in my room, shoot across the, the length of the room, okay, it's going in. If I am standing diagonally toward, more toward my nightstand that is beside my bed, you know, I'm having to angle a little differently. Shoot, it's going wow. in. Wow. And, and yeah, it was just all based on the positioning of those different, those different things that were in my room. So you're creating, uh, is vision the right word? You're creating an image, a vision of what your room is without being able to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And it eventually turned, I'm, I'm speaking in the terms of the bed, the nightstand, wardrobe, window, door that leads into my room, those things eventually turn into, into spectators, into large stadiums, into half-court logos. And so now it wasn't, it wasn't a bedroom anymore. It was an actual stadium where 
hours performing and competing. Wow. Your first kind of foray into athletics and first time you started realizing and getting encouragement for your athletic prowess was during something called the presidential physical fitness tests. Um, I took those two as a kid and you and I have very, very similar moments in that I discovered that I was a good athlete, that I was strong and had a lot of endurance because I could jump farther than anybody, everybody else, but I could also do endless push-ups and sit-ups. Right. And I was just really, really good at it. Um, and you had the same experience. How, how was this, uh, presidential physical fitness test, a pivotal moment in your life as far as letting you know that, yeah, you've got some, you got some springs. Yeah. It was huge because literally speaking, it gave me the opportunity to see that, yes, I did have talents athletically. My mom's side of the family is the athletic side. Mm. They've they've played it off from softball to baseball to basketball. You know, they're they're just out there and everybody. Literally my <laughs> my grandmother, you know, she's she was still playing sports when you know, I I remember going down to my grandmother's hometown or my family's hometown and at that time, I still could could kind of see I was pretty young, and they were all playing you know, adult league softball. Or you know, my grandma, they would go out into the backyard and play games and things like that. So, yeah, my like my entire family is they're pretty athletic. And going back to that that fitness test, it number one was showing me that I had a lot of the same gifts and abilities that my family had Mm -hmm. number two it helped me see that okay i am doing very well in these activities and and also doing a lot better than some of my sighted peers and then i think number three it showed me that for so much of the time that i've been living you hear no from the outside world. Now, my mom and, and, and Mr. Whitmer and all of the people who make up my, what I consider my family, my tribe, my, you know, my, those, those are the people who I Your community. I love. Yeah, my community. Um, anyone outside of that space, more times than not, you are hearing what you couldn't do or you were being mm. questioned as to, are you sure about this? Or are you sure you're going to be able to do this? And in that presidential fitness test, there wasn't anyone judging me. It was me stepping into that space and putting on display what I had the ability to, to do. Yeah. And, <clears throat> it, and for me, that physical fitness test it ignited something yeah. that I didn't quite know was there. Right. Sounds like it was the same for you. Yeah, totally. Totally. When I, we had the push-ups, we had the sit-ups. I'm pretty sure there were some other things, but there was also standing long jump. Yeah. When I took my first standing long jump, 
it was like, oh, oh my gosh, like, what did we just, <laughs> what did we just witness? Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with some more sports life balance. I want to tell you about our partner, Roca. I've been wearing their industry-leading wetsuits and goggles and swimsuits for years, but Roca also makes amazing eyeglasses and sunglasses, and they're designed for those of us who like to push ourselves physically, but want to look good doing it. And I know this firsthand because I own several pairs, and they're incredibly light, and they won't slip off my face even when I'm working out. And the best part is you can try them on at home before you buy them. Roca will send you your choice of four frames, and then order your favorite. It's that simple. So go to roca.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter code SLB as in Sports Life Balance. That's just three letters, SLB, to save 20% on all your orders. And that's for anything on their website. And now let's get back to the episode with Lex Gillette. When I took my first standing long jump, it was like, oh, oh my gosh, like, what did we just, <laughs> just witness? We had to take a second one. I exceeded the the first one, and it 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 ended up being around ten feet. And wow. so, just to make sure that it wasn't a a fluke, we had all stayed after class. And Mr. Whitmer and a couple of the other gym teachers were like, "All right, let's let's see." And so I took another one and you know duplicated that ten foot jump from there it was your mind starts racing at that time I didn't know about Paralympics yeah right so I literally was was just like okay well this is really cool I know how to like I can jump far but Mr. Whitmer was the one who he knew about adaptive sports and right and was he a PE teacher or he was a teacher of the visually impaired although he did he had a he wore a lot of hats okay he was a PE teacher I think he was an assistant basketball coach but yeah, he was the one who he he was he used to go to this this sports education camp that was hosted by the United States Association for Blind Athletes. And each year he would go up there, volunteer. He would also take athletes up there. And I eventually became one of those athletes who he took to this camp in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm. And is that where you <clears throat> learned actually how to long jump? Yeah. Long jump without your sight. I mean, I can only imagine it must have been terrifying, especially at the beginning. Yeah. How, how do you even go about learning how to do that? And, and, and tell, tell me about the process a little bit. I think what really helped me is the fact that going back to Crown Court in my neighborhood, it had gotten to the point where I was really comfortable in running around that space. And I could... You know, those three stairs that I talk about walking up that that led to that would eventually lead me to my front door. I would clear those stairs with one with one leap. There was this ledge in front of the the front front of the house that I would Mm -hmm. jump off and things like that. So I had some jumping abilities. But now that we discovered I had a pretty good standing long jump, it was putting that talent in to the actual sport itself, which yes, when somebody is asking you to sprint as fast as you can to propel yourself through the air and land into a, a sand pit, yeah, it is scary. Because right. now this is this is a calculated 
very specific type of thing. This isn't me running around my neighborhood and jumping into a huge patch of grass where it doesn't matter where you land. I have to land within the boundaries of a rectangular sand pit, <laughs> which, right. is, which is, uh, yeah. yeah. But Mr. Whitmer was the one who, he helped me to dial it in, and he explained everything to me. And I consider it a blessing that I was able to see at one point in time because I have an idea of what certain things look like. So he literally showed me what the runway, how that is laid out. Mm-hmm. Shows me how wide the runway is, how long it is. Shows me that there is a takeoff board that's in the ground and that is where you are required to jump from. Shows me the sand pit, how wide it is, how long it is. When I engage with an environment in that capacity, it's like I'm learning crown court over again. It's like I'm tapping into that ability to create these these mental images, which at the end of the day, that is helping me to see what it is that I'm dealing with. And when I have that picture in my mind, it allows me to maneuver with a certain type of confidence that is, you know, it's it's uncanny. So, um, So now that I knew the layout, it was actually doing it, which he said, I'm going to stand and, and stand and clap and yell. I'm going to be at the takeoff board. Straight, 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 straight. Oh, so he's, he's where, you're take, where you're about to take off. So you're kind of, you're honing in on the sound. Exactly. Listening to where he's standing. We determine how many steps I take, which that is, that's what you do in long jump, whether you can see or not. From there, it is me counting those strides at the right stride, jump, soar through the air, and land in the sand. Those first few ones, I you can't even classify them as jumps. They were like, they were probably <laughs> little little hops, baby hops. But having Mr. Whitmer there and you know, having that person who, at a time, I couldn't really see it myself, to have someone there who could see it and who could give you that that positive reinforcement, that encouragement, that guidance, letting you know that this, this ground is completely flat. There's nothing that you're going to trip over. You have grass on either side of the mm-hmm. runway. This is, this is flat. If you run off of the runway, you're not going to fall off of a ledge or off of a curb. Right. There aren't any poles around. You're not going to injure yourself. I just want you to listen to the sound of my voice. Trust me, count your strides. And at the right step, I want you to jump forward and the sand will be waiting for you. So it's like the ultimate and trust exercise that you're learning yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, athletics for, I mean, you ask any athlete and athletics was uh, liberating and, and um, it was invigorating and it helped me at least navigate through adolescence. Um, tell me about how how you were able to navigate through high school where you really want to fit in and yeah. you, you have some unique challenges that you need to deal with. Yeah. It, at first it was being at Athens drive high school. It was okay. We have a student who's blind. He's in our class. He, you know, some people might've thought that I was kind of smart or 
uh, you know, he's a little different. And that was purely because of my disability. But once, once that people got a, a whiff and a sight, they were able to see that I had some athletic talent. Yeah. The whole scene changes. Like you are, if you're that kid on the, on the basketball team, football team, and you're pretty good, the kids look at you differently. I was on the track team by the time I was a junior. Wasn't that good in the beginning, but toward the end of the season, that is when I really started to excel, and I became one of the, the better jumpers on our track team. We had our announcements on, on TV. Oh. So we had a, a, you know, like a production team, and they would, they would do the announcements on TV before class would start. It got to the point where I was – I was I was on TV, nice. so I would walk through the walk through the halls and be in the cafeteria in the gym and oh man that's Lex that's Lex oh man what's up Lex <laughs> da, 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 da. so it's it's just a total now your your whole your swagger changes yeah that's what athletics <laughs> does changes. right and I'm like man this is kind of nice and I you like found this. you found some power in there yeah. and some inside yourself yeah exactly it wasn't it wasn't me. As that kid who, you know, just kind of, I wouldn't say I stuck to myself, but I had no issue with, you know, doing things independently and Mm -hmm. just, you know, rocking out to the beat of my own drum. Now it was, all right, I'm walking through groups and crowds in the hallway and they're like, oh man, what's up, Lex? What's up, Lex? Like, Mm -hmm. it was just a total different experience. It Mm -hmm. was, it was really very invigorating. Yeah. And, and from there... <clears throat> from high school is when you you really started developing yourself as a international athlete then. Yeah. Yep. It was Mr. Whitmer and I we had trained the summer in between my junior and senior year. That's we were really able to make some huge deposits. Being in the weight room, going to the track. My senior year in high school, that is when like I, I was probably the most consistent jumper on our team, one of the, the, the better jumpers. And so you can imagine going to visiting schools, kids being out there, mm-hmm. seeing me. And, and I can totally feel the eyes watching other competitors green, from Green Hope High School or Broughton or whoever we would compete against. Some of them would come up to me and they would ask different questions. Are you, are you competing today? And me, I'm, yeah, yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. How far do you jump? And so those questions, they, they typically came across as very condescending. Hmm. And I'll say, you know what, let me correct myself. Maybe not condescending, but just very not genuine. Hmm. They un- so, were underestimating yeah. you because of your. That's what I. Yeah, that's what it. That's what it appeared to be. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounded like, or maybe I just took it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so when they would ask me, "Oh, how far do you jump?" I would intentionally tell them something totally just far out the blue, like, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm only I only jump like 13 feet." Mm-hmm. And so they would be like, "Oh, okay." So it would confirm what I believed that their thoughts were. Then competition would start. I'm jumping 18, 19 feet. 
And some of them, they're only jumping 17 feet. Maybe some of them are mm-hmm. jumping 18. Eventually, I get to the point where I'm jumping 20. And so it's a it's a different type of <laughs> it's a different type of sting when yeah. you have someone who's blind or someone who has a disability and they are beating you in 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 athletics and in sports. You know, for someone who may not have a disability, you know, it's, it's I would imagine that it's probably humbling. And I got so much joy from that <laughs> from from busting just their from, expectations. yeah just from yeah just from putting them in in their place do, and uh do you think that um paralympic athletes in general uh, uh have to deal with that just by nature of who they are and their disabilities i think they're underestimated i think that there are people. maybe not Maybe not all of them, but I think that there are a lot of athletes who have experienced that, Paralympic athletes, mm-hmm. Paralympic hopefuls who have experienced that. Because the average person you know, looks – I think it's just human nature for us to step into certain situations, not all, but certain situations, and, and you compare and contrast. Yeah. Say you're on, a, you're on a basketball team and you see a team that you're going to play from another state maybe a team that you haven't really – you don't have a lot of footage on and you're looking at them and it's like, oh, man, they got somebody who's 6'10". They got another person that's 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, We're all 6'1", 6'2", 6'0". And and you're starting to think in your mind, oh, man, there's no possible way that we are going to go in here and slay these giants. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get on the court and that ball goes up, it doesn't really matter anymore. It's about execution – and who is bringing their their A game? And those those giants, as they seem, as they look, you know, they might not have the same abilities and skill sets that you have. And you're using the gifts that you've been blessed with to to get the win. Hmm. And uh, you know, I think you know, in our in our case. <clears throat> I would imagine that there certainly are a lot of cases where people underestimate us and say, okay, well, this, in their mind, they may not say it out loud, but yeah. in their mind, it's like, okay, we don't have to worry about much today. Well, but as soon as the whistle blows, it's game on. Yeah. Well, that's the definition of an athlete, right? Yeah. You know, we were talking about uh, support uh, a little bit earlier, and I think that all athletes, not just para, uh, para-athletes, um, have to rely upon their team. Um, and I can't think of any more vital uh, uh, piece of your teamwork was, is your guide. Yeah. Um, and we spoke of that a little bit earlier, but tell me about the importance of that person who is, 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 is your partner in making yeah. sure that you're safe and making sure that you're successful in jumping into the pit. Yeah. None of the... The medals, the records, the, the none of those things are are possible without my guide Wesley, Wesley Williams, and he is he's the air traffic controller. Mm. He is making sure that the runway is clear, and that I have the safest skies to fly. Yeah, he provides the the auditory cues he's down there yelling fly 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 as loud as he can i lock into the sound of his voice and from there 
it is running as fast as possible to the sound of his voice. A lot of people think that he is telling me when to jump mm-hmm. or that he tells me when to jump, but he's he's literally there to make sure that I'm safe, to make sure that I stay in the middle of the runway. Right. And I know that I'm still in, I'm, I know that I'm in a safe space because he's yelling fly. That is my, that's my green signal. And if you're not in a safe space? He says stop. Got it. And, and we'll go back okay. to the start mark. Now, sometimes I might veer slightly to the left or slightly to the right, and he has his, his, his bag of tools where he'll either manipulate his, his voice by maybe yelling louder or maybe yelling softer or maybe stepping slightly to, if I'm veering too far to the left-hand side, in order to bring me more towards the middle of the runway, that mean he that means he's needing to step to his left hand side so he's or kind my of, right hand he's side. He's steering you exactly. with the direction of his voice. Exactly. Exactly. But if I get too if I veer too far off, then he yells stop. Stop. Yeah. Okay. So he's working his magic. Only thing that I'm doing is following his voice, counting my steps, and at step sixteen. I know that, you know, it's, it's go time. It's time to it's kind of take off. It's time to fly. Exactly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, I'm reminded of a story and uh, that I, I, it's actually an interview that I saw of the late gold, gold medalist, the great bobsled driver, Steve Holcomb. Yeah. And <clears throat> in this interview that I saw, he spoke of that he had an eye disease. I believe it's called keratoconus. And he, he was learning to drive down a you know down a bobsled track at 90 plus miles an hour right. while slowly losing his sight so he attributes his great driving skill to the fact that he was able to drive by feel yep. more than vision yeah um can you relate to that is there a part of you and your your other senses picking up their acuity so that make you the athlete that you are totally I think that the the feel that is that's huge. Understanding how the ground feels under my feet, understanding how my body is maneuvering through space. People always ask me, "Oh, what's your sixth sense?" Like if you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I would say that it is my it's my spatial awareness. Whether I'm competing, whether I'm walking through the city, navigating through different areas, I am always aware. I know exactly where I am in space. It's almost it's, it's freaky at times because I'm able to detect certain things before my cane actually touches those things, and uh, it's 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 very interesting because I remember having this conversation with with uh, with Steve. Um, he had come out to the training center a mm. couple of times. And so, uh, you know, I remember him saying that eventually, I want to say he had gotten the procedure done to to fix that condition that he was dealing with. And so he was able to see a lot clearer. And 
I remember him saying that it was almost like it was scarier now because he could see. Okay. Wow. And and and, and so I felt like that was really that was really <laughs> interesting. Like yeah. you you see too much, and I always get the question: you know, if you ever had the opportunity to get your sight back, would you take it? And emphatic no. Wow. Emphatic no. I mm. think that it would totally ruin. I just think that it would ruin so many different things. I, I just feel like so much of the world is is visual, and even if we take it out of the the sports context, there are since things are driven by this this visual context, you can. You can edit things, and you can alter things, and you can change things, and 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 I don't think that I don't think that is giving us the purest, authentic view of the world and is beauty. Like being able to listen, like waking up in the morning and and hearing the birds chirping. Being mm-hmm. able to to walk around and to smell the the freshness of the air and to just be in your own space, walking around and and just uh, you know tapping into that ability to to feel your environment, to oh, like all of those things. I think that since people are so focused on what their eyes see, it drowns out in certain ways, the ability to really tap into those other senses and other abilities. So what would be your advice to somebody like me, for example, who has my site to, um, I guess, to help create more depth to my appreciation? And, And ultimately, the name of this podcast is Sports Life Balance. And maybe create that balance and that happiness and that centeredness that you seem to be speaking of. Yeah. What what would you suggest? I think one of the things, one of my buddies and I, we, we recently started a a nonprofit called site school. Mm -hmm. And so our main focus and goal is to teach people to see their potential. And one of the things that we wanted to, uh, to do very simple, but, to to task people with trying just very simple things without being able to see. Mm. For example, you wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you know, close your eyes and and squeeze the toothpaste on your your toothbrush. See if you can do it. Mm. Close your eyes and walk up those stairs that are in your home, the same stairs that you walk up every single day. Maybe even you know, take take time to just close your eyes and and walk around your home. And I believe that what that is doing is you're you're tapping into a different a different system. You're you're tapping into that ability to kind of feel where you are in space, mm. to understand what is beneath your feet or what is underneath your hands. Mm. It's just really exposing exposing you to another part of 
of the world, like a world that, again, you know, it kind of gets drowned out by all of the, the, the scenes. Yeah, yeah. That you're looking like. I want people to transcend beyond sight. Like I have a, my slogan is no need for sight when you mm-hmm. have a vision. And I know that for me it was very challenging at an early age because I couldn't see anything. And you think about uh, you need to see to drive, although though that will probably be no more here in, point, in, yeah. in the future. Uh, but as it stands right now, you need to see to drive or – uh, you know, if you're in a in a room and you're looking across the way, you can see someone's facial expression. You can you can basically say something to someone else without even uttering a word. Cause you see, you could see a smiling face, or yeah. it could be a certain expression where you're like, "Oh, ooh, I didn't mean. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that." Right. And uh, you know, I can't I can't do any of those things, and I felt disconnected. But what really brought things back to focus is at the end of the day, I think about, you think about sight and that is our ability to see what is currently in front of us. And, you know, we're in this room right now and we have the table here and we're sitting mm-hmm. in chairs and all of those things were once non-existent. The only place that they existed were in someone's mind. Mm. So I told myself that, all right, well, if this is, if it really does happen this way, it doesn't matter whether or not I can see. The only thing that I need is to have this idea, this vision. And if it is a, a vision, I believe vision to be something that that transforms minds, perceptions, communities, culture, society, the world. Mm. And something of that magnitude absolutely requires other people. Yeah. And we are all different. We have different skill sets, talents, abilities, gifts. So those areas where I might not be as... I might not be as uh, uh, skilled. Mm-hmm. There's someone else who is. Yeah. And we play on words here. We connect together and we acquire a similar visual acuity. Mm-hmm. And we develop this plan and do everything in our power to bring that that vision into fruition. And that is that is our ability to transcend beyond what our eyes see. Because something like... Yeah, I want to I want to win gold. I want to do all of these things in the sport and you don't physically see those things in the beginning. But with your coach, strength and conditioning coach, dietitians, mental performance coaches, so many different people, you mesh your skills together and eventually years down the line, you're standing on that podium experiencing what you saw years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit after reading your book and and just trying to get my head around it. You know, I, as an athlete, I always, I visualized a lot and you visualize a lot and I know, I know what it looks like. I know what, you know, my best events look like. And I'm, I'm, I wonder how your visualization is different because you don't, you don't have sight. And I believe you had never, you haven't even ever seen what a long term Never. looks like like um do you think it goes back to what you learned at for example your grandma's house um about like imaginary adventures yeah um, i definitely think so it's like you, she was planting those seeds in my mind 
at an early age and really encouraging me to be curious, to ask questions. I even think about we had this small, this small convenience store that was, I would say, about two or three houses down. Mm-hmm. From your grandma's house. From my grandmother's house. So you walk off of the front porch, turn to the left-hand side. I would be walking where the the grass line and the street met. And it's like a little small, like, two-lane street. It's not getting much activity. Mm-hmm. She would be on the porch. She would be watching. If I got off course, she would... All right, go go to the, go to the left, go to the mm. left. <laughs> but after I got familiar with that path, I knew that once that ground began to decline and the grass turned from it turned from grass to dirt, I knew that I would be approaching the stairs to that store. Mm. And I could walk up those wooden stairs, open the screen door, go inside and and cousin Liddy store owner she would uh you know she obviously knew me and mm-hmm. and um she would get up and and go behind the go behind the counter and there were the the sodas in there and the cookies in there and the pickles and chips and all of these types of things where she all right what what you want baby <laughs> and uh you know my grandma would give me you know a dollar or something and and you know at that time this is <laughs> this is like Sometime in the nineties, I was able to get so much with that dollar in that small town that she would give me my items, encourage me to she would let me know how much it was, and I would bring the change back home, make sure I had well actually make sure I had the correct change, and then you know make my way back out of the store down those stairs and follow that same path back to my grandmother's house and she would be on the on the porch waiting. So it was so many different things that you know at that particular time at, at that age it's like oh you know just having fun and mm-hmm. doing the things that I enjoy but you look back on those moments and times and realize how impactful it was in in your growth and development as yeah. as a person. <clears throat> I was also thinking that you're the only current active athlete that I've had on Sports Life Balance. Oh man! Everybody else has been <laughs> been retired, um, and you um, you've gone to five consecutive Paralympic Games, starting in Athens, correct? Yeah. Um, and you've won five consecutive silver medals, yeah. including in Tokyo yeah. last summer. It's an amazing feat by any standard, right? But I also heard you say you you aim to win. Right. Is that elusive gold medal frustrating or energizing for you as um, you sit today? I think Tokyo was frustrating. All of the other ones, all of the other ones, I would say, I'm sorry, Tokyo and Rio were frustrating. And I'll explain. 2004 was just, you know, that was my first one. Yes. Did I go into that competition aiming to win? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen. But I also was able to swallow that given the fact that I was 19 years old, first time. Yeah. That was my first – I started training in when I was 16, 17 years old. So mm-hmm. to even make it to my first Paralympics within those two, three years, I just had to say, okay, 
2008, I had a little hiccup that it was that was my fault. I typically jump from 16 strides in my mm -hmm. long jump approach, and I accidentally jumped from 14. Oh wow! And uh, still made it into the sand, and it was a great jump, but it wasn't from the board, so I lost <laughs> a lot of distance. Yeah. And uh, but again, that was something that I could totally put on on myself on my shoulders. Yeah. Right. Fine with that. 2012, I had gotten, I gotten injured, and I always hate like talking, <laughs> talking about injuries and things like yeah. that because for the outside world is like, oh, it sounds like the, those are excuses, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. But yeah, I did. I had a like a grade three, grade two slash three quad strain two months before the games, and so I was off of the track for four to five weeks, and I had about. I don't know, two, three weeks to get ready prior to London. So for me to win that silver in London, even though I still felt like I could have won, looking back on those results, it just it wasn't in the cards. You know, I'm, I can accept that. Rio was frustrating because we, as, as totally blind athletes, are usually granted silence when we're competing. And the crowd was not silent. There was a lot of music that was pl being played mm. inside of the stadium. The PA announcer was constantly talking. I asked Wes, Wesley to, to talk to the officials and let them know that, hey, it's kind of loud down here. Can we get some silence? And apparently they, they basically said that they couldn't do anything about that. The reason that I have an issue with that particular competition is because when you are totally blind, you need to hear your guide. And this right. wasn't something that was just solely Lex Gillette, like, oh, okay, I can't hear anything. This was a lot of my competitors. And I would much rather all of us have silence so that whoever wins, hopefully me, mm -hmm. I would be able to look at that and say, you know, I, like I won fair and square. There wasn't, there wasn't any sort of competitive advantage that I was given that – led me to the gold. We, there were other guides out there. I remember one of the guys from Spain, I think he had tried to get the crowd to quiet down and they, they booed him. Oh my gosh. So it was just a, it was just a very, it was a wild environment and the, to, to make matters worse. What really made it challenging is the fact that I had, I was basically in the, the, the back of the pack. So I'm in like 10th, and, and we have the, the prelims. And I need this last jump mm -hmm. to be a good one so I can get into the, the top eight, which the top eight go for the medals. Okay. So I eventually, boom, 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 run down the, the runway, boom, and I catapult into like sixth place. So okay. I was like, all right, good. At least I'm in a space where like I have a shot now. I, on my fifth jump, I believe, went from sixth place to, to, to the gold medal position. Oh, wow. So and you had I a really that, good jump. Yeah, so it Were was Were you just good. having an off day? It, it was not an off day. I felt great. Oh, gosh. It was just a matter that I was literally trying to – I could not hear Wesley. Mm -hmm. It was like I was listening to a very muffled voice and muffled hand clap. Oh. And that was all because of the external sounds. Luckily, I was able to get that jump in, but I knew that I was like, "All right, that was decent," but that wasn't that wasn't any anywhere close to what I had in the tank. 
So I just told myself that, all right, well, I was able to do it then on my sixth jump, I'll, I'll be able to, to run it back and, and have an even better mark. So I take off, boom, 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 running down the runway. And within the, like, I don't know, the, the middle of the approach, the crowd, you know, they, they start yelling and, and, and there's a lot of chaos again. In my mind, I told myself, all right, well, I can, I can try and put on the brakes because there is you know, a decent amount of real estate. But mm-hmm. I had already – I was at top-end speed by this point. And so my fear was if I try to stop now, I'm not going to – I'm not going to be able to totally cease the run before I touch the board. And if I touch the board, that's going to be – that's a foul. Right. So – I just trusted in my abilities and just told myself that, all right, well, Wes is, Wesley's in front of you. Let's let's go. And I jumped. When I landed in the sand, I knew it didn't, I knew it didn't exceed my previous mark. So now mm-hmm. I was in a position where I was praying to God that, all right, hopefully nobody passes me up. Right. Everybody else is jumping. The Brazilian guy comes up to the runway. And I kid you not, the PA announcer comes on the microphone, and this is what typically happens for us. He goes, shh. They put the silence on the on the jumbotron. The entire crowd. Silence. That silent. Oh. So now I'm listening to his guy like Man, he sound like he's standing in front of me. <laughs> like, oh, that's how clear man. he sounds. And that is the same. That is what we are typically given in all of our competitions. And as any good athlete, the Brazilian guy ran down the runway, mm. boom, 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 jumped, lands in the sand. We wait a few seconds. Wesley comes over to me, and he's just like, man, come on, like, we're both on pins and needles. Like, oh, nah, he didn't get it. He didn't. He, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. <sighs> Crowd goes crazy, mm. and I knew. I already knew. I already knew what had happened, Ugh. and uh, you know, I just buried my head in in Wesley's shoulder, and I was like, "Yo, there's no way that this this just happened." It was like a movie, mm. and uh, and again, like after. After that event, you know, we go into the, the mix zone and have to talk to the reporters and things like that. And uh, I was just, I was at a space where I wasn't fully able to digest and interpret what had happened. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I talked to a few people and then I just had to, you know, I, I was in tears by that point. I just, I just left because, um, you know, I had to I apologize to them, you know, in real time as yeah. we were standing there. Like, you know, I just, you know, I, I just, I'm sorry. Like, I can't give you my best right now. Um, and again, that was largely because I just felt like the competition could have played out differently. Mm-hmm. And, and number one, first and foremost, just ensuring that we all had an equal playing field, which yeah. I don't feel like we had. Not saying that I would have won had it been totally silent for everyone. But at least we wouldn't have we wouldn't be having this discussion right now. No. Um, so that one stung. Tokyo. Tokyo was more so. Uh, I was like, man, 
there's no way I'm leaving this place without a gold medal. I felt good. I felt fast. My very first jump, just barely fouled it. And I landed in the sand. And based off of where I landed, I was like, ooh, it's going to be a great day. I only <laughs> took like one step to get to the back of the pit. So I knew that was a huge one. And from there, my, my coach, he was like, all right, we're going to back up a little bit um, because you just have a lot of speed. And, and, and yeah, like, it's just looking good right now. And, um, yeah, I think now that I have an opportunity to fully look back on that competition, I think that, number one, I wasn't able to duplicate that, that, same, that same drive, speed, perfection that I had in mm-hmm. that first attempt. Um, and it could be a lot of things. I think that now as an older athlete, one of the things that looking into to Paris that I want to do is to find some different things that I can do in the meantime yeah. in between jumpers because there's a lot of idle time that we have. And, you know, being in your mid-30s, I can't really – you know, I'm not 21 anymore. Right. Where, you got to <laughs> like, train differently. I could just get up. Yeah. yeah, I could just get up and make it happen. Um, <laughs> so I just think that it was a matter of, all right, I just got to really make sure that I'm staying, that I'm moving around, that I'm staying warm. Because the other thing is that our event, it usually takes around an hour and a half, two hours. Mm-hmm. The reason being is because since they are asking the crowd to be quiet, they're doing that in between events, medal oh, right, ceremonies, right, yeah. all of those types of things. So if a medal ceremony is going on, they pause our event. If the start of the hundred is going on, they pause our event. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's just a lot of time that mm-hmm. you're sitting around, and um, so yeah, I think that going into Paris, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch up switch it up a little bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, hey, as much as I, as much as I um, am glad that I have gotten on the podium at all of the games that I've competed in, no winning. Silver has never been my goal. It has always been to win a gold medal. And I do believe that that will happen before I hang the shoes up. And like Michael Jordan, that is what is one of the things that's fueling you to for two more years till you make Paris. Yeah. yeah. Mm. On your website, you mentioned this, Lex, Lex, LexGillette.com. Um, the first thing that you read, and you, you mentioned this, it's your you, it's a slogan that you use, is no need for sight when you have vision. So give us some final thoughts about how all of us can learn from your lessons um, in sports. Um, yeah, I think that it is. Uh, so again, going back to the sight, sight is, is constantly changing. You you wake up, sunny outside. You wake up, it's gloomy outside. You wake up, you see certain things that you might not see tomorrow. And that, in a lot of ways, dictates to us how we feel and how we maneuver forward. Mm. Whereas your vision is, that's more of something that is static. That is your ability to see something before it exists. You see beyond the horizon. You see where it is that you want, where you want to go, what you want to do, and who you want to become. When you have that, that allows you to see 
hope, success, glory, even within the times of despair or challenges or or obstacles. And that is what gets you out of the bed every single morning. Mm. Doesn't mean that there is a problem with you doesn't mean that you know it's a problem that you <laughs> don't feel like training today or doesn't mean that there's a problem with oh you know I want to you know, maybe I want this this uh ice cream bar or something mm-hmm. like that I don't know but it just means that you have the starting piece the starting point and that is seeing what it is that is possible and the mission from there is to and I'll pause a second and say just because you see it doesn't guarantee success seeing it is literally just the starting point Hmm. and from there it is your requirement to develop a plan to connect with the right people and to do everything in your power to bring that vision into fruition. As you maneuver down that path externally, there's going to be a lot of things that might try to knock you off of that that path, knock you off of that road. Distractions, could be people wanting you to come hang out or do this, or you wanting to stay up and all of those types of things, but you really have to stay locked into that into that vision and and what you see. And the beauty of it is as you stay on that path each and every single day, for example, you see that that training regimen that your coach gives you. You want to be at a certain space in this periodization, going into the next periodization or training cycle. You want to be running this speed or lifting lifting this amount of weight. You're able to see those gains. You're able to see those performance measures being achieved. In the beginning, your vision is something that it appears as though it is like it's miles away. Mm. And as you continue to to see those daily wins and those daily achievements, that vision it gets closer and closer and closer until it is at the, the point where you can reach your left and right, reach out to your left and right and and totally just like hug the vision. Wow, beautifully said. Well, thank you so much for uh, having us here at the Elite Training Facility um, and your home. And uh, you need to go train. But yeah. thank you so much for <laughs> spending time with us, with telling us your thoughts and Um, and for being on Sports Life Balance. I appreciate it, John. It's my pleasure. I'm glad you had me on. Me too. Thanks, Lex. Thanks. As has become a bit of a tradition here at SLB, Lex would like to leave you with a quote that gives him boundless motivation. It's from the great heavyweight boxer, Muhammad Ali, and it goes like this. The man who has no imagination has no wings. Clearly, Lex is still embracing all those lessons he learned many years ago from his grandmother. If you'd like to follow Lex as he trains for the Paris Paralympic Games in 2024, go to his website at lexgillette.com. That's all one word, L-E-X-G-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.com. 
I'm John Moffat, and thanks for joining us. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us your five-star review and do me a favor and spread the word. Hope you have a vision-filled week. That's it. Come back again next week for another episode of Sports Life Balance.